You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. Later, we'll be hearing about women's risk of cervical cancer after treatment for neoplasia and how best to mitigate this. The question is, do we have to change the follow-up which we have now? Is it then not that if you do more intense follow-up in these women, you do more harm? But firstly, the silent misdiagnosis. Not a clinical one, but of patient preferences. Here's Tessa Richards, Associate Editor at the BMJ, and Al Mully, Director of the Dartmouth Centre for Healthcare Delivery Science. Al, in your paper, um, you say that doctors devote a lot of energy and spend a lot of healthcare resources diagnosing what's wrong with patients, but not enough time listening to patients and discussing treatment options with them. And I expect many of our listeners feel that they strive hard to do this. And so I wonder if you could talk us through the evidence that doctors misdiagnose patients' preferences for care and why you call it the silent misdiagnosis. We begin the paper, as you know, with a reference to an example. Um, we talk about two women with uh, breast cancer. The first, 58, uh, is devastated by the diagnosis. She has her surgery. She's just beginning to recover, both emotionally and physically, and she gets a call from the hospital and is told that she never had cancer after all. There had been a mix-up in the pathology laboratory. Um, the second woman, age 78, is um, equally devastated. Uh, she has congestive heart failure. She, she knows what it's like to be ill and face a serious illness. Um, she, too, is recovering from her surgery when she runs into a friend who said, well, when I was in the same situation, I just chose to take hormone therapy to slow the cancer's progression to a point where I'm quite likely to die of something else. And um, she, too, was devastated, knowing that um, had she been given that option, she would have preferred um, that approach rather than the surgery. And our point is that in the first case, everybody recognizes that this is not a good thing, and there's a, there's a, a lot of response, loud response. But in the second case, it's a silent misdiagnosis. There's very little response. When you actually ask doctors what patients want um, in general, um, and then ask patients what they want, um, there's often a very serious gap in knowledge. Um, for instance, if you ask doctors about how often their patients would consider the prospect of losing a breast, one of their top concerns, 76%, say that that's the case for their patients. When you ask women the same question and you give them the same list of concerns, only 7% list losing a breast as one of their top three concerns. There are many other examples where there's this kind of disconnect. Can I then ask you um, your views on how doctors can get better at enlisting patients' preferences for care? I truly believe that clinicians want to do the right thing for their patients. It's, it's just that we don't pay enough attention to preference diagnoses. We believe that disease diagnosis is the clinician's job and all clinicians uh, are taught that as they're formed as clinicians. Um, what we don't teach them is the importance of um, diagnosing the patient's um, preferences. And to get the right treatment, um, the preference is as important as the disease. So if we were measuring um, the, the extent to which we accurately diagnosed preferences um, and provided that information back to doctors along with tools and support for them to do it more accurately, I think we would see a profound change. 
um, I think doctors would take this very seriously. It's good to see um, our acknowledgement of how how difficult it is to reach these decisions and act on them with patients. And do you think, um, given that the model of informed shared decision-making has been out there for a long time now and the value and importance of using decision aids in the consultation um, repeatedly underlined, um, it's, do you think there's now more recognition that this is very much more difficult than it appears? Oh, absolutely, Tessa. I think that it's, um, in my mind, um, the goal of shared decision-making is uh, an aspirational goal, and we should do what we can to be sure that a well-informed patient um, can confidently make a decision um, that they recognize to be consistent with what matters to them in life. We know that um, individual agency and a sense of autonomy and self-efficacy are very important in all aspects of life and important in in healthcare. But clinicians are often dealing with patients who are feeling uh, more vulnerable than they ever have before in their life. Um, So in that vulnerability, um, the the clinician's job is to support the patient, and sometimes that support uh, requires a well-informed recommendation. But the recommendation is not well-informed if the information is only derived from the clinical evidence and does not include information from the patient about um, what they care about, what their goals are, what their priorities are. Um, With that respect, uh, Al, you make the point when you discuss the policy implications is that doctors would be helped in their day-to-day practice if they had better understanding of the preferences of groups or populations of patients and the outcomes that they value. And you argue for data to be collected um, on this. And I wonder if you could say more about from whom and why you think aggregated data would be useful. Well, let me, let me take a step back and say, to some extent, we're talking about the, the clinical challenge and the policy challenge of standardizing care based upon the best evidence but then personalizing care based upon what the individual cares about. Um, the NHS is, is currently um, wrestling with the ethics of standardization in its policy for breast cancer screening. And uh, the controversy revolves around the fact that we've learned relatively recently, um, certainly since um, the current policy was put in place, um, that breast cancer is subject to overdiagnosis. So the question is, Given that there are those real benefits and real harms, um, we know that women would make different decisions if fully informed. Some would want to be screened and some would choose not to be screened. So in many ways, this this controversy that is being addressed by the um, Marmot Commission really illustrates that if we standardize on evidence and we don't customize and personalize based on the individual, we guarantee preference misdiagnoses. At the individual level, if we had the aggregate, so imagine we went out and we gathered up a number of um, um, English women age 50 and made sure that they were very well informed about the screening trade-offs. And then we asked them, what would you like? What would you prefer? And perhaps before we asked them whether they would like screening or not, we asked them how they felt about outcomes. If you 
take that aggregate data and look at it, um, you would see a lot, of, a lot more clarity in the kind of policy decision that is being made for a population of women. The clinician would begin at least with a good estimate of what this woman might want, and then it would be up to the clinician to engage the patient, interact with the patient, to ask questions that help them to revise that first estimate of the preference. This is, this is identical in form to the way in which doctors make disease diagnoses. They start with a hypothesis, they estimate a probability, the probability goes up or down as they take the history, do the physical exam, order some tests. We're saying that preference diagnosis can follow the same path. That's very helpful, and I, I take your point there. But a, another issue I'd like to raise with you, which um, comes in at the end of your paper, you make the point that informed patients who receive treatment that's based on their own preferences for care consume less health care. Um, there, there have been more than 100 randomized trials of decision aids to help engage patients in their care, um, often for uh, decisions like breast cancer or prostate cancer or um, treatment of benign prostatic hyperplasia or benign uterine conditions that, that confer annoying symptoms that can be reduced if you're willing to take certain risks. And um, a number of those trials, roughly 10, have compared a surgical intervention like prostatectomy or hysterectomy or coronary artery bypass surgery um, with continued medical therapy or even watchful waiting as the alternative. And in the majority of those trials, um, there's a significant reduction in the rate at which people choose to have the um, more costly, um, more invasive intervention surgery. The average um, rate reduction is roughly about 25% um, when one reviews those trials. There's also some evidence that when you use the same approach to engage patients in primary prevention, in secondary prevention, um, and recognize that it isn't just standardization of care based on the evidence, um, but it's also engaging the patient and asking them wh which of these tasks, whether it's minding your blood pressure, minding your cholesterol, minding your glucose, which of these tasks are easy for you to accomplish and which of these are hard? It's the kind of engagement that the Wanlis report estimated could save um, 30 billion pounds a year for the NHS if we achieved it uh, by the year, I think, 2021, 2022. There is lots of evidence um, to suggest that clinicians engaging patients and interacting with them more um, would achieve an economic victory as well. Lots well, of powerful messages there, Al. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us. My pleasure. Um, thank you very much. A study recently published on BMJ.com reveals the high relative risk women treated for cervical intraepithelial neoplasia, or SIN, have of developing cervical cancer. Compared to those with normal smears, the risk is fourfold. However, the particularly worrying thing about the women in this research was that they'd all completed post-treatment follow-up and been given the all-clear. So how can we change care for women after SIN to decrease this risk? Earlier this week, I discussed this with Matteo Rabel, a postdoc in the Department of Public Health at the University of Copenhagen, who's lead author of the paper, and also Chris Meyer and Micah Bleeker, both in the Department of Pathology at the VU Medical Centre in Amsterdam, who co-wrote the accompanying editorial. For a bit of background, here's Matteo on how follow-up after SIN varies internationally. The follow-ups after CIN treatment, at the moment, they're 
undergoing quite major changes. So um, what the what countries are using at the moment in terms of um, recommendations actually varies quite a lot. Mm. Um, so whether they're using cytology or have they switched to uh, HPV testing, some of them are using colposcopy as uh, part of the standard or routine uh, follow-up after CIN treatment. Then the countries differ uh, according to what kinds of intervals they're uh, recommending. Is it uh, six months intervals? Is it yearly intervals? Is it two yearly intervals? And of course, the length of the follow-up, which could be, well, six months, um, according to the uh, new policy from the UK. It could be uh, two years, such as in the Netherlands or in uh, Denmark. It could be up to 25 years, such as in Sweden. Okay. And and what about in um, in your study population? What was the, the follow-up that they went through? That was the routine uh, recommendation from the Netherlands that has been in, in place since, I think, the late 1990s. Um, and that was um, follow-up cytology at 6, 12, and 24 months after treatment. And, of course... If women were um, found to have normal cytology, normal smear test results uh, at all three um, time points, then they were recommended to rejoin the regular screening program, which is really a fallback system that every country is using. In terms of the follow-up in the first period after after CIN treatment, this is quite standard, but some countries actually recommend more follow-up after two years. So actually, um, the Dutch guidelines are some of the least intensive on the overall in the world. Why are these women at increased risk? Here's Micah Blika. Well, I think uh, one important thing is that women are at an increased risk for cervical cancer because they have residual disease. Mm. And I think you should target that first for your post-treatment follow-up. Then you have a group of women who might have an increased risk uh, for getting cervical disease after a new infection, perhaps for because their immune system is not good enough to clear a new HPV infection. So that might explain the increased risk in these women. But I think first one should be sure enough whether there's no residual disease. Doesn't that suggest that we should be trying to increase the sensitivity of of screening? Do you think it would be wise to add HPV testing into cytology screening programs? Yes, and the best thing to do to increase that sensitivity to to pick up the residual disease. And I think that should be the main goal of this post-treatment follow-up. So adding HPV testing could help. But what about addressing increased susceptibility? Do women need to come back for regular checks for decades after sin? Although the fourfold relative risk is high, the number of cervical cancer cases in women treated for sin and given the all clear was only 1% of the cancer cases of women who hadn't had sin. And Chris Meyer feels this isn't enough to change the current programmes. The question is, do we have to change the follow-up which we have now because the absolute risk is so low is it then not that if you do more intense follow-up in these women you do more harm 
for perhaps a cervical cancer uh, which you might detect more. The overtreatment, uh, actually, if you have a LEDs, which is normally done, the risk is limited, but the more volume you take out of the cervix, it's increased with becoming more difficultly pregnant and also with preterm delivery. So those are important risks, especially since uh, these women are in their uh, fertile period. Hmm. You can, of course, make a joke we, we, that we sometimes do. If you have uh, one, one guy who lives without a head, and then you have, in, uh, on, say, one billion of people, and then you find four of them, do you then, uh, to detect them, have to uh, do more intense screening, etc., etc.? That's actually the question. <laughs> Mike Bleeker agrees. Well, I think that when they have a good negative follow-up, including HPV, that it is safe enough to return to the national screening program and come, let's say, for instance, after five years. But Matea thinks we should still be looking for solutions. You need to have a sensitive follow-up in the early period after treatment. Ideally, thereafter, we would have some sort of a follow-up which would not be a burden on the women, but at the same time it will be able to protect these women which appear to be actually quite a vulnerable group. How to do that? I do not know. There are actually hardly any data um, to uh, support any conclusions on that. The HPV vaccine programmes mean cervical cancer will be less of an issue for the next generation of women. But Chris thinks the vaccine could also benefit women who develop sin now. There is a paper of Yaura published uh, recently, I think it was Lancet Oncology, and in that paper they showed that in the vaccinated arm, the women who got CAN3 uh, compared to the controls who didn't got vaccination, you see that you get less uh, post-treatment disease. Mm. My hypothesis on that is that uh, I think that uh, when you remove the lesion, the viral load is so low that it might be worthwhile in women who have not been vaccinated that you give them the vaccination uh, at that time. Well, Chris, Matea and, and Micah, thanks very much for, for coming on and discussing this. You're welcome. Okay, thank, thank you, very, you much. very much for the invitation. That paper and editorial are now up online. So take a look for the subtleties of the evidence underpinning those arguments. And if you're interested, there's also another paper alongside these showing combining HPV testing with cytology would be more cost-effective than cytology alone. That's all for this week. Come back next Friday to find out about controlling counterfeit drugs. Thanks for joining us. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.